Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Kevin Drewley, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. And with me, as always, are fellow associate editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. It's December, and if you're counting along with us, this marks episode number 22 in this show's budding history. We hope you all are safe and well wherever you are enjoying this podcast or other safety and health content. We appreciate the listenership, readership, viewership, and any other ship or form of support I'm forgetting. If you want to read about news from around the occupational safety world, including highlights from the 2021 NSC Safety Congress and Expo in Orlando, which also will be covered in the December issue of the magazine, please check out safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Since you already have your browser open, we encourage you to also visit the website for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health, and that's available at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family. There you can learn much more about safety away from work. In this episode, we'll be anything but apathetic when we speak with Barry about his feature on overcoming complacency. We'll also be joined by communications consultant John Capecci for our five questions with segment to learn more about how safety pros can boost their comfort and skills when it comes to public speaking. And also, please stay tuned for our pop quiz when we'll talk about our preferred winter sports or activities. Is everybody ready? Here we go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we take an in-depth look at a feature story from the pages of Safety and Health Magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. This month, Barry writes about something that can affect all of us at one time or another, and that's complacency. In the world of work, complacency can have dire consequences, as Barry illustrates. So how do safety professionals and organizations help their workers avoid it? We turn to Barry to lead this deep dive and let us know more. Well, thank you, Alan. Really appreciate that introduction. And in some way, all of us have experienced complacency. Uh, We drive home from the airport after a vacation. Uh, We pull into our driveway and we aren't really sure how we got there. Uh, That has happened to us all, I'm sure. We know that that uh, pot of boiling water on the stove is hot, but without thinking, we touch it anyway and we get burned. Um, Either we get in a rush or we go on uh, what some call autopilot mode during those tasks that we do every single day. Uh, The way the National Safety Council defines it as a, a feeling of security that leads to a lack of awareness to one's surroundings. Um, And one of my sources for this story, uh, Safe Start Senior Safety Consultant Jack Jackson said, he defines complacency as the act of doing routine tasks without thinking about it. For workers, though, complacency can have some pretty serious consequences. And Jack Jackson mentioned uh, when he worked in the automotive industry early in his career, he told a pretty grim story that he picked up seven fingers off the floor on a manufacturing line. And he said that everyone knew the specific rule about not trying to free up a jam with the guard open, a finger on the trigger, and the hose connected during this duty that workers were doing. But he said everyone had done that. They got complacent and they ignored the hazards. Now, obviously, that's a pretty painful reminder about the dangers of complacency, but it does illustrate just how serious this topic is. Uh, In 2020, National Safety Council surveyed more than 300 of its member organizations about their most pressing safety issues. And the two items that tied for the top spot uh, among 51% of respondents uh, were employee engagement and safety and health, and also safety complacency among workers. And Paula Gold-Williams, who is the CEO of CPS Energy in Texas, she said complacency feeds off of workers feeling they've got their tasks down. And in order to combat complacency, 
leaders want people to feel conscious in the moment. So they're deliberate and they're really paying attention to their surroundings and the job at hand. How can complacency come about for workers? Well, Kevin, in some cases, it's a matter of habits. Uh, Sean Galloway, who is the CEO of Proact Safety, uh, we chatted for this story, and he said that that workers can become desensitized to a hazard uh, if they've done things a certain way for years and not gotten hurt doing so. Um, He shared the example of trying to open a valve by pulling a wrench toward your face. Um, And if you hadn't gotten hurt doing it that way for years, Well, it must be safe, right? Uh, In fact, a a perception is created that this is a safe way to do things when it's really not. And too often, he said, we define success just as not getting injured. Um, Now, there are warning signs of complacency. And Jack Jackson mentioned that um, the best ones are close calls and near misses. Uh, And what companies should do is treat those incidents as opportunities to learn about complacency. And when it comes to safety, uh, Paula Gold Williams said that complacency doesn't pay attention to job titles or seniority or anything like that. And in, fa- in fact, she really embraces giving frontline workers uh, the ability to stop work if they notice complacency creeping in and creating a risk. Uh, and she said that status on the job, including her title as CEO and her seniority on the job, should never trump a worker who notices an unsafe situation on the job and wants to stop it. So in in what ways can employers help combat complacency? Well, Alan, that's a good question because workers aren't the only one who can get complacent. Uh, The same thing can happen to companies and organizations. This didn't make it in the story, but we wanted to share this with our listeners. Sean Galloway told a very interesting story about how a plant in the Northeast he was working with was was fantastic when it came to safety. And he said they also recently added about 50 new workers. The plant manager noticed that that one of those new team members ducked under a production line that had moving product on it. And that's something that in their organization is a big no-no. Now, this company isn't able to engineer somebody from not going under the line because that line does get moved quite often. And the plant manager said, I just can't believe that somebody would do that. Uh, I thought we were well past our workers doing that. And what Sean Galloway said he told him was that that this company created a culture of safety among its workers that they would never go underneath a line. But one thing they didn't do was pass that knowledge and that culture along to those new employees, uh, especially through the onboarding process. And, and what he mentioned was that, that sometimes companies who try to combat complacency uh, sort of hit the brakes after they institute a best practice. Uh, he mentioned that the companies that continue to look for better ways, even after instituting a best practice, often have the most success when it comes to complacency. He said they're able to continually get better uh, because they're acting as a learning organization. Now, on the flip side, there are companies that can accept the status quo when it comes to safety and, and being complacent, uh, and, and they don't see it. They don't see that approach as a risky one. Uh, another topic is, is communication um, in a variety of forms. It's it's absolutely necessary when it comes to to combating complacency. And there are three good examples that I want wanted to share. Uh, one was uh, Jack Jackson said that. Uh, changing up the placement and the wording of signage around a workplace is really important. You want to give workers a reason to stop and to digest that safety information that you're trying to get across. The second example is is a funny one, but it's an effective one. Uh, One company that that Sean Galloway worked with, he found that safety information was best placed on the back of bathroom stalls. 
and they called it the Porcelain Press. Um, and as a former newspaper editor myself, that sounds to me like some of the names that readers called several of the publications that I used to work for. Um, the third example I wanted to, to offer was a really unique method that Paula Gold Williams shared from CPS Energy, and it's called Meeting in a Box. So they take a news story about a safety incident that happened in their industry, the utility industry, and they break it down into a one-page communication with safety tips. And they use that communication to spark a conversation about potential safety issue. And her, her example was that there was a crane incident that had happened in their industry, and this took place at another organization outside of their company. But the value was that that meeting in a box communication got workers to think about crane safety and sharing that information with leadership on, on the flip side. Those workers were able to digest that information from the meeting in a box and share their best practices with leadership to keep everybody safe. One last thing I wanted to mention was a, a very thoughtful comment that Paula Gold Williams shared from CPS Energy. And that is that, that complacency is a normal human reaction. Uh, she said it doesn't follow you because you're in a big organization or a small organization. It follows you because you're human. And she said that some important things for folks in small organizations to remember about complacency is that it doesn't take fancy programs and it doesn't take a lot of money to tackle this issue. It takes engaging people in your workforce and throughout your company with a purpose, a purposeful conversation. And that, she said, is absolutely free. Well, thank you so much, as always, Barry, for this interesting and important feature. If you want to learn more about helping your workforce avoid complacency and read other news from around the safety world, please check out the December issue of Safety and Health Magazine or go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, safety on the job is important for you and for your colleagues as well. We want to make sure that you and your family stay safe and healthy away from work too, and we have a helpful publication just for you. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health is packed with tips, advice, and the latest news on topics from the home to the roadway, and from your favorite outdoor activities to your sleep, diet, and much, much more. Check us out online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family to read some of our latest articles, or call 800-621-7619 to get a subscription. Despite the dulcet and lovely voice that you hear on this podcast, public speaking is definitely not one of my favorite things or one of my fortes. It's a needed skill, however, for many safety professionals, whether they're talking to large or small groups of their coworkers and others, for tips on how to improve or develop the skill, we're speaking to communications professional and NSC advocate, John Capecci. John, thank you for joining us on the safe side. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Uh, what makes safety professionals and others so uneasy about public speaking? Well, I think it has something to do with being human. You probably know and your listeners probably are familiar with the attitude surveys that come out every so often and ask, you know, what are Americans' top fears? And public speaking is always there and, you know, one, two or three spot. Uh, and I think that in itself is is useful to know that that you're not alone in this. If you feel an anxiety or reticence about public speaking, it, it is uh, a human element. But everyone comes to it differently. So let's take that apart a little bit. For me, what I find when I'm working with speakers and people who are, are 
improving their public speaking skills. It comes down to two things. And then one other thing that I think might be particular to safety professionals. The first is the, it's the fear of the unknown. When you think about all of the questions that come to mind before you speak to an audience, where do I start? How much should I say? How much time do I have? Who's going to be in the room? What do they know? Uh, you know what if I forget what I'm going to say? Where am I going to be standing? How much time do I have? What are the first words out of my mouth? What are the last words? All of these questions are the, the, this, that you don't know uh, can build up. And I think that's where a lot of the uneasiness is about public speaking. So when I'm working with speakers, what we're really trying to do is to take away the unknown. How many of those questions can we answer before we get into whatever space, wherever you're, you're speaking to find out, you know, who is going to be there? What do, what is the level of information that they already have? Do I know where I need to come in? Uh, what are the, how am I going to be, start? What are the first words out of my mouth? So the more you can answer those questions and really think about those unknowns, it really goes a long way in building your confidence and comfort level before you actually get into a speaking situation. So the fear of the unknown. The second is that this is a vulnerable space when you are responsible for delivering a message, whether it's to inform an audience or persuade an audience, that's a lot of um, responsibility. And I think we feel that as speakers. And sometimes we can be really hard on ourselves because I think we carry this uh, very often a perfection in our heads. We think, well, I have to look like this if I'm going to be an effective public speaker or sound like that person. Or what if I stumble? What if I forget? And my the whole thing's going to be blown. And we, we can be really hard on ourselves when you're in that space, in that vulnerable space. So part of what um, you'll hear me talk about uh, today is getting into the right mindset and getting into the right headspace is a lot of of what it takes to be to feel more comfortable public speaking. So we try to look at the setting up real expectations for ourselves. And then the third thing that I was thinking about with safety professionals, you may run into this very often, is that when you are a subject matter expert, when you're so far into your profession and you know so much, it sometimes can be difficult to know how much to say or um, what to, to shift your perspective into the audience's role to say, what, where do I need to start um, with an audience that may not be as professional or knows as much as I do about this? I don't want to come in over their heads, but how can I get the, my information I know so much about into a really manageable time and, and, and manageable package? So I think that's a challenge as well that might um, cause some unease about public speaking. And then don't even get me started with remote presentations. But actually, we'll talk about those, I think, today, too, because um, I, we're still in a place where very often our, the presentations we're giving are into a camera via Zoom or, or Teams. So we can talk about how to feel more comfortable with that as well. So, John, what are some basic tips for safety professionals who want to improve their public speaking abilities? Well, first, I would think about separating it into two types of improvement, content and delivery, what you say and how you say it. I mean, obviously, those are inextricably linked, but but they require different kinds of attention. So, well, first, let's let's talk about content. Um, I mentioned this already of when you're a subject matter expert, sometimes you need to uh, remind yourself to shift perspectives, to be audience-centered. And so, I often advise speakers before you even decide what you're going to say, what you're trying to accomplish, you know, in a, a, a talk or presentation, to first step back and 
and think about the audience's perspective. You can never know too much about an audience. I, I find the more you can find out about them or th- put yourself in their place to think about what knowledge they have, what attitudes they may be bringing into the situation, uh, and what you can truly accomplish with that audience in the time you have. Um, I, the question I like to ask myself before putting together any talk or presentation is, if they remember nothing else, what do I want them to take out of the room? If somebody were to talk to them after they heard me speak and they say, well, what did Capecci talk about? I'm hoping that they would say this, or I'm hoping they would say this. So I'd really try to focus and be strategic before you even start putting together the content of your talk or presentation. And then in putting it together, it it really comes down to being super organized. Uh, you know the cliche of you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. It's a little simplistic, but it's a great reminder that there is a package that you want to put together. And the best speakers really make it very easy for audiences to classify the information. They don't have to work to say what's the most important here. The speaker, the most effective speakers really take the audience on a tour. So you sort of, you lay out a map for them in the beginning and say, here's where we're going, folks. We're going to stop here, here, and here. And then throughout the talk, you're doing whatever you can to guide them clearly through this information. Uh, Typically, we arrange it around three key points or five key messages. And then you give signposts along the way. We're going to go, we've stopped here to talk about this. Now we're moving over here. And really, you can't be too obvious, I think, when when you're speaking to help guide people through the process. So that's a couple of tips in terms of content. In terms of delivery, uh, the very fact that you've tuned in to hear this podcast today is the first step. I mean, you're getting serious about it. I mean, it takes time and it takes attention. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning that um, it's not one of your favorite things, Alan. I would guess that most safety professionals listening probably didn't choose this career because it would give you a lot of opportunities to speak, right? But still, it's an important part of the career and life. So to get serious about it, to really think about what, how much time am I going to devote to this very necessary skill? Train for it. When um, you're going to run a marathon, you don't just open the front door and, and start running, right? You you find out what others have done to be successful. You uh, warm up, you start slow, uh, you train for it. Uh, and that's the same thing with public speaking, which is a full body experience. One of the best tips I find that I've seen really help people get much more comfortable uh, in the act of speaking is to get the talk into your body as soon as you can. In other words, start speaking even when you're just thinking about what you're going to say, what you're going to put together. In the privacy of your office, in the privacy of your home or home office, talk out your ideas. Well, I could start with this, or I could tell this story, or I want to really get this across. And and get in the habit of oralizing your process, practicing on your feet, even while you're trying to figure out what you're going to say. And that sounds really odd, but what you're doing is you're already practicing the whole body that's going to be giving this presentation. The sooner you can get speaking, the closer you're going to get to that really comfortable uh, presentation style. Now, I know everybody works differently. At some point, you need to to sit down and, and write out your ideas or put together an outline or work on some visuals. 
But more often than not, what I see people doing is spending 90% of their time doing that. And then, okay, now I'm going to get up on my feet and try it. So that's the last 10% is the actually the most important part is getting that voice and body comfortable. If you start speaking it earlier, you're actually practicing and warming up the, your entire tool, which is your voice, your body, your, your expressions early on. Uh, another tip is to get as close to the actual speaking situation as possible to, first of all, know as much as you can about if it's an actual space, you know, what that space is going to be like, if you can get into it to take a look at it. So you have that in mind as you're preparing. Same thing goes with uh, virtual platforms as well to, to know the technology. As you mentioned, we all probably know a lot more about uh, this technology that we ever dreamed we would still to get really comfortable with the platform, whether it's Zoom or Teams, know what the rules of engagement are. If, if people are going to be using the chat box or are they going to be on camera to really know, again, just as you would want to know how much or where you're standing in an actual room and where the audience is going to be to ask those questions also of the remote platform as well. Am I going to be able to see um, faces are they going to have the opportunity to interact? Am I going to be using any of the tools of that, that platform and practicing with that as well? One other uh, uh, tip that I'm frequently working with um, speakers on is looking for those opportunities to make it personal, to share your personal experiences, your stories with an audience. And that doesn't mean you, you need to disclose your, your deepest, darkest secrets, but it is saying to think about what you've experienced as a professional. How can you bring in those examples of, of the information that you're conveying? Personalizing information also is not just sharing stories. It's also saying what your relationship to the content is. When, when you say, when a speaker says things like, you know, this next uh, information that I want to share with you is what I'm most excited about. You know, when I, when I tell you what my relationship is, is, how I feel about what I'm expressing to you also is making a personal connection to say, here's what I was surprised by. This still troubles me, or I think this is, is worthy of discussion and here's why. And whenever you make that connection between yourself and your content, I think you're also um, um, engaging the audience as well. So those are some tips. Staying on, on the tips front, I know you mentioned some of those training tactics a moment ago, but as for the actual practice and simulation of public speaking, what might you recommend as, as ways to do that? Sure. One is uh, what I discussed earlier about oralizing, talking it out as soon as you can to start uh, working that into your process so that practice is not the last thing you get to, to incorporate it into your development work. Really, that goes a, a long way. Uh, I think also to practice, it's important to think about the style of speaking that uh, you you want to use. In business presentations, typically it's, a, it's more informal, conversational than say, if you were giving a TED talk, right? Uh, and the, the type of the mode of speaking that we typically recommend is what I call improvisational speaking. It's not completely speaking off the cuff, but it's also not completely scripted and sounding very canned. It's somewhere in between where you've organized it. You know how you're going to start. You know where you're going along this journey. You know how you're going to end, but you still work to keep it conversational. I always think of it as it's very much like jazz. It's 
when a jazz musician uh, is playing a, a standard like um, My Funny Valentine or as time goes by, you know, the notes of the song are going to stay the same. But how he or she gets that song out there is going to vary each time, depending on the mood, depending on the audience, depending on the time. And it's the same way when we're giving a talk to or giving a presentation that you've got it structured, but allow yourself that freedom to stay conversational. If it doesn't come out the same way every time, that's fine. And so what can you do in your practice to allow you to keep conversational, but also stay on track? So I usually um, encourage speakers to work toward a sort of skeleton outline, the key points, you see your structure there, but to really work on, on working away from that outline and, and think about keeping in contact with your audience. Uh, people say, is it, is it bad to have notes? Or, or, and I say, absolutely uh, not. It's not bad. It, you should take with you everything you need in order to stay on topic, but also stay focused with the audience. So uh, that's part of the practice as well, is, is getting used to working off your outline, but also feeling um, comfortable referring to it when you need to. Uh, another, I think, important part of practice is uh, leaning on your community of colleagues. I think uh, other professionals, if you're all um, frequently having to speak, whether it's to frontline workers or to uh, C-suite or at conferences, talk to each other about the process. Hey, what have you found worked? Or what did you do when? Or how do you start? Um, what have you found um, uh, is what people really latch onto when you're talking about that topic? And, and start you know, sharing that information with your colleagues in your community. And I think you start to build this community of speakers. Uh, so that's, you, again, you're not alone in doing this. We're all trying to work on the same thing, which is to be concise and clear and engaging. So talk to each other about to do uh, about how you do that. Don't be afraid to ask for feedback. Gather a small group together, whether it's friends and family or your colleagues, and you don't have to try out the entire presentation, but you might want to gather some folks together and say, hey, I was thinking about starting like this tomorrow. How does this sound? Or did anything in that, I'm going to give you just the first couple minutes, does anything stick out that doesn't make sense? Or do you have any questions there? And it's really, you know, it's so valuable to get that feedback uh, before you actually get into the actual situation. Another tip for practice is um, to practice your presentation in chunks. Uh, in other words, don't um, practice only from the start to the finish each time. Okay, I'm going to get up and, and start the presentation and then you start practicing it and what happens the phone rings emails come in you get distracted you stop okay i'm going to start again you start again another email comes in and pretty soon you are only practicing part of the presentation what i er encourage people to do is is practice in chunks practice the introduction practice a particular slide if you're using visuals practice the last minute uh, practice a particular story. The more flexible you are in dipping in and out of this talk, uh, the more uh, flexible you are when you actually give it. Uh, this is probably the time to, to think about Zoom tips uh, too, because uh, it requires just as much practice, I think, when you are presenting remotely as it does when you're in the actual room. One of the hardest things for, for some people is to get used to uh, delivering to a camera. 
and uh, you've got you may have other things to look at on your screen, or you may have notes with you there. But to really take the time to practice looking directly into the camera, that you don't have to do it the entire time, but to make that your default, where as often as you can, to speak to that camera as though it is the other person uh, on the other side of it. It really does go a long way in engaging those who are tuning in and, and watching your remote uh, presentation. If you are presenting with visuals remotely, um, you know, if you share your screen or, or, or uh, throw your PowerPoint up there, uh, you your face becomes the little small thing in the corner and the, the visuals take up most of the screen. Uh, and the visuals typically are, you know, larger and more colorful than than you are as a speaker. So what can you do to work against that? Uh, practice going full screen. Practice with the with Zoom or with the uh, Teams platform of stop sharing so that you are full screen when you want to talk to your audience, engage with them, and then share again. You might pick out two or three places in your presentation where you know for certain you're going to stop sharing and go full screen so that you can use your face, face your facial expressions. Um, you can talk directly to the camera, engage uh, remote listeners that way. Um, of course, think about everything around you as well, what that shot of you looks like. Typically, we bring the camera just a little bit higher than uh, uh, eye level and think about what your set looks like behind you. Um, you've all been in enough Zoom meetings to know now when your attention wanders, it might go to the bookshelf behind the speaker and try to figure out, oh, do I have that book? What is that? Uh, so think about anything that could take uh, uh, the audience's attention away from, from your talk as well. So what are some of the benefits that can come from being a better speaker? I was thinking about this personally, like over the years, what have I how have I benefited or what have I enjoyed? And, and it came down to two things. One is the personal gratification that you have when you know that you've made a connection, when you see heads nod or eyebrows rise or people stay after and actually ask questions and, and are engaged in your topic. I mean, that, that the gratification of that is there's really nothing like it to know that you've, you've landed and you've, you've actually made a difference, whether it's imparting information or getting people to think differently about something. But, but certainly another benefit of being a more comfortable, confident speaker is uh, you'll be asked to speak more often. You'll be asked to lead. Um, people do, do, uh, are attracted to someone who is confident and clear in their communication. So you're building your personal ethos uh, but also your professional ethos. Uh, we look to to uh, clear speakers as our leaders, as our respected colleagues who who have a talent or have built a skill and worked that skill to speak confidently and clearly. And so, um, don't be surprised when when you start getting more requests. John, the last thing we wanted to ask you about was for, for folks who do want to improve and really dive into speaking, are there resources or tools that you would recommend? Yeah. Um, first, I would go back to what I said earlier to build your community. First of all, I think know, know who your colleagues are or friends who you can talk to about your public speaking. Uh, and and so you, it becomes an active part of your lives, not something that 
the necessary evil that you have to do every so often, but uh, keep the communication about communication going uh, with your with your colleagues. And the second is is to invest in the help, whether it's a twenty dollar course at the library or it's uh, hiring a communication coach or communication agency. Uh, I would go online, look locally, but now you know the benefits of us being virtual or hybrid is is that they don't have to be local, and there's a lot of great online uh, support. What I would do is search for online public speaking, or also search for communication skills or presentation skills, because uh, coaches and agencies refer to it in, in different ways. Uh, and then when you find uh, some online uh, resources, uh, I would look at for two things: look for uh, their accreditation. Look if they have been accredited by an organization such as the ATD, which is the Association for Talent Development, and also look at what their approach is. Um, you know, again, step back and think about what kind of speaking support you want. Are you going to be giving a TED Talk or are you giving more informal presentations as part of, of doing business? Um, the reason I say this is that you, as you look across um, various uh, agencies or coaches you might find online, you'll see that each has a slightly different emphasis. Some may be preparing professional speakers to be on stage with huge visuals um, behind them and a headset mic and more of the sort of TED Talk uh, format. Others are really focused on your day-to-day -day business communication. So um, really look carefully what their approach is and don't be afraid to ask um, how they, they go about working with speakers. I would be leery, a little bit leery of, of coaches or agencies that are very performance-based or rule, rules-based. They're going to tell you, they're going to guide you to a very particular kind of speaking as opposed to those that are really focused on you making a connection uh, and also are familiar with uh, the demands of business communication. So that's where I would start. I'm looking online first for online resources and then see locally if if any of these coaches or agencies offer one-on-one, -on -one, you know, personal actual coaching as well. Uh, I, I work specifically, not specifically, but particularly with speakers who are drawing from their personal experience, who are sharing their stories in order to connect with an audience. Very often it's, it's to advocate for a cause or, or an organization um, that they're working for. If you have a particular interest in that kind of, or that aspect of communication of drawing on your lived experience in your personal narratives, I'd be more than happy to speak with folks as well. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you so much, John, for sharing uh, this information with us and our listeners. Uh, and it was great to have you here on the safe side. Thanks so much for having me. I really, it's one of my favorite things to talk about is talking. Well, in many areas of the country, December brings us chillier temperatures, snow, ice, and Oh, the joys of winter driving. On this month's pop quiz, we want to share what we consider the most enjoyable parts of the winter season, especially for those of us here in the Midwest. Um, I'll go first. I wanted to, to, to share one thing I like to do is, is uh, winter hiking. Um, and I will say a good safety tip is, um, unlike the summer, tennis shoes will not uh, get the job done when you're going on a hike in the winter. I have a really good pair of boots 
And, and that's the best tool I can recommend for a winter hike, but always really enjoy those nice winter hikes, that fresh, cool air. Um, one thing I'd really love to do is go snowshoeing. I've, I've seen it a lot on, on TV and a, and a lot of specials online and uh, would love to give that a try. Alan, how about you? So what's my favorite winter activity besides staying in and hibernating? Um, I, I, as a kid, we obviously didn't snow very often in Memphis, but it did a couple of times. And uh, going sledding and tubing was always fun on, the, on those rare occasions. So uh, Kevin, what about you? Yeah, there'd be that line of demarcation as far as things that you enjoyed and slash could physically do more as, as a kid versus as, as an adult. Um, similar, we were a little further north in St. Louis than Memphis, so we got some snow and the ice there also can be pretty treacherous. So no, certainly was fortunate to, to grow up right by a city park and that was always kind of the, the haven for sledding as well as the occasional game of snow football or things like that. Um it's been a long time since I've ice skated, but that also was something I enjoyed doing. There was a, a famed outdoor rink at Forest Park in St. Louis that still is open. And one of these next visits, I should, even if it's for half hour or 40 minutes, just still go and, and venture out and do that. So uh, I, I'd say those two things, snowing and sledding with also, uh, I, I'm with Barry on on the, the winter hike and how you can get a nice release from that. Well, I would agree, uh, Kevin, and I would say my ankles have never hurt more than when I attempted to ice skate. I tried that a couple times and uh, never got back to it. Uh, Just don't, uh, was not very good at it. So uh, now we want to hear from you out there in our listener land. Uh, Go ahead and share your favorite winter activities uh, by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or checking in on social media with the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we're grateful that you spent some with us. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. We also appreciate you sharing a rating and a review of this podcast. To find stories such as Barry's feature on complacency, as well as the latest news from around the safety world, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, we appreciate you listening via whatever platform, and feel free to spread the word about this podcast. Most of all, please stay on the safe side. <laughs>